Hi, uh, welcome to Teach the Word. Today we're going to talk about sex, uh, biblical sex education. Um, and we're going to do something different. We're going to try to have the scriptures on screen to the uh, side. So let's begin with prayer. Heavenly Father, Abba, we come before you, we cry out to you, and we ask, Lord God, for your powerful, uh, saving, um, insightful wisdom and the work of your spirit in our lives. Father God, we know we are broken and corrupted people living in the midst of a broken and corrupted culture, but we know that you are pure, you are holy, and you empower those who seek you to live pure and holy lives. And so we come before you, Father God, uh, seeking your truth on this topic, and more than seeking just your truth, seeking your power. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, uh, the uh, topic is very pertinent to our world today, to our culture today. Um, we live in the midst of a culture that has um, confused ideas about uh, sex and uh, that needs uh, or is in need of uh, redemption. So what what's we're going to break this up into th three parts, basically. Uh, the... Um, where the Bible is celebrating, commanding sex and celebrating sex and the good uh, side of sex. Um, then we're going to move into where sex is perverted by the enemy for uh, his purposes and gains. And then we're going to then we're going to move into uh, <clears throat> the third part, which is uh, the redemption of sex. So. Uh, this is something that I put together from Scripture uh, to be an encouragement to believers uh, who are seeking what the Word of God is teaching about sex, but also as a resource for those who are seeking to uh, instruct others, um, especially parents seeking to instruct their children. So let's start with uh, Sex Begins. That, that basically is in the creation narrative. So if we go to Genesis 1, you'll see, Then God said... Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over the cattle, over all the earth. Uh, <clears throat> so I'm, I, I should realize that even though I have it up on the screen, someone might just be listening uh, as in a podcast and not reading. So I need to, uh, I'm reading Genesis 1, started in verse 26, and I'm going to read through 29. And I just read 26. Um, now we're going to read 27. Man has dominion over all the creatures. God's creating man have dominion over all the creatures is verse 26. Verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over... Oh, I lost my place. Over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves upon the earth. And God said, See, I have given you every herb that yields seed, which is on the face of the earth, and every tree whose fruit yields seed. To you it shall be for food. So that's God's uh, instruction to man at his creation. What is he saying? To uh, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. Have dominion. Uh, that's a that's a imperative, a command God's giving to the human race, uh, and it is only 
uh, capable of being fulfilled through uh, sex, being fruitful and multiplying. That's uh, the command. Uh, there's another thing that I would like to point out in this verse, and that is uh, that God makes uh, mankind in two genders, male and female. And that's it. There's no, there's no other uh, added uh, anything else there, just male and female. All right, so that's uh, one uh, face of the creation narrative. You have the family, the filling of the earth, and you have male and female coming together, producing offspring, right? Um, then let's look at uh, a more intimate uh, description of this, where uh, the man and the woman first man and the woman actually come together, and that's Genesis chapter 2. We can start in verse 18. So we just got to type this in up here, Genesis 2, 18. Hush, oh, bam. All right. And the Lord uh, God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. So you get the idea of God's intent for marriage here, is that a man and a woman would come together in a way that um, they compatibly complement, help one another. I will make him a helper comparable to him. Out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field, every bird of the air, and brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. And whatever God called each living creature, that was its name. So Adam gave names to all the cattle, to all the birds of the air. Again, I'm reading Genesis chapter 2, I started in verse 18, now I'm on verse 20. So Adam gave names to all the cattle, to all the birds of the air, to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper comparable to him. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on him. Let's just pause there. So what does that mean? That means that in God's design for the human race, uh, a man needs a woman, and a woman needs a man. Um, and... God's not okay with the idea of, um, you know, the man with, with the dog or the woman with the dog or the cat because he brought all those animals to Adam. He said, what, what was his assessment of, of the man with the various beasts of the earth? He said, There's not, this isn't going to do. There's not a helper found comparable to him. So verse 21 of chapter 2, And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam, and he slept. And he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in its place. Then the rib which the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman. And he brought her to the man. And Adam said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and they were not ashamed. So we see some of the beauty uh, that God intended for human sexuality here in the, the first meeting of the man and the woman. There's uh, full vulnerability, nakedness, there's, and there's no shame, shamelessness attached. There's no shame attached. They're naked, they feel no shame, and they're able to come together and become one flesh. Of course, that refers to a lot more than the act of sex, but it also uh, most certainly does refer to the act of sex because um, it's quoted in, in the New Testament as referring to uh, the act of uh, prostitution being a negative thing because you're becoming one flesh with the prostitute, which is purely uh, an act of sex. <laughs> it acts, but uh, there's more to it. It's a whole relationship of intimacy. Um, so we see... Uh, 
what I what I just want to call here is kind of the the the, the mandate for sex or the, the command for sex. Mandate's a best better word I think, and that is uh, a, a godly family producing offspring, uh, the man and the woman coming together as one. Uh, marriage, family, is the context in which uh, God instituted uh, or mandated sex. Uh, <clears throat> what else can we learn uh, about sex from Adam and Eve? Well, if we jump forward to when they have their first child, that would be Genesis 4. So if we go Genesis 4, start in verse 1, you have... Uh, <clears throat> The first occurrence of the description of sex in the Hebrew Bible, and that is, Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain and said, I have acquired a man from the Lord. Now this is a very uh, <coughs> literal English translation. If you were to uh, read a looser translation that's trying to modernize the language, it would, it would do something like, you know, and Adam lay with his wife Eve, or uh, so, some modern English euphemism for sex. But here we have the Hebrew Bible's <coughs> euphemism for sex, which is the verb to know. Um, and it is used of sex, no matter what the type of sex is. If, if someone's raping someone, uh, they, this is the verb that's used. It's a euphemism for sex. So you see, we see that in Genesis 19, where the city of Sodom, all, all the men in the city of Sodom gather together to rape these two angels. And uh, that's the verb that's used. But uh, <clears throat> I think that euphemisms tell us something about uh, the, the understanding of what's going on, uh, the intent, the true intent for sexuality, and that is knowing, deeply knowing. Uh, there's intimacy of um, knowledge of one another, of connection with one another that is, is part and parcel, or not part and parcel, but um, is a necessary, is necessary for sex to be true sex, to have true meaning, is that the man and the wife Adam and Eve have to have a deep, uh, intimate, knowing relationship one of another. If uh, if they don't, the uh, act of sex isn't really sex. In, in some sense, it's lost its meaning. Uh, and I think this euphemism, this Hebrew euphemism, is, is interestingly beautiful and in that it teaches us something of that. Why on earth would they ch choose the euphemism, the verb to know as a euphemism for sex, if not that sex requires intimate knowledge of the other for it to really be true sex. That's that's a lot, a little, quite a bit perhaps uh, uh, on the interpretive side of things, but um, I, uh, I happen to uh, think it might be true. So then we're going to go to the chapter, the Song of Solomon. Song of Solomon is uh, a poem, it's a love uh, poem. It's, it could be considered maybe a a drama, a play, even because you have these different people speaking: the the lover, the the, the man, the woman, uh, then these random people on uh, on the uh, off to the side. But uh, if you go to Song of Solomon, see, look, you see the various headings we have here on the side. We have the Shulamite, that's the woman, and you have uh, the daughters of Jerusalem. They just sort of interject here and there. You have the Shulamite, um, and you have, where is he? The Beloved. 
That's the lover. Now, um, <clears throat> you might wonder if you're just reading this, how that, how these English uh, translators came up with these titles. Well, it has to do with the, the grammatical, uh, you. Uh, in English, we just have you, 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 but in Hebrew, uh, there's you, masculine, feminine, plural, singular, uh, and so you can tell who's talking by the pronouns they're using in Hebrew, but you can't tell in English. So it's not like the translators made it up. They actually, it's actually visible in the Hebrew. Uh, but for the most part, I mean, there's some, there's always some level of interpretation, right? Uh, but getting a little sidetracked, Song of Solomon is, is a celebration of sex. It's all about, uh, intimate, uh, relationship, love, uh, kissing, hugging, uh, caressing and and actual sexual acts it's uh, uh, lying you know it's it's all in there um, and just just to point out I want to point out the lack of shame um, in God's design for sex shame is immensely uh, a part of Satan's perversion of sex but in God's design for sex there is no shame so I want to just point out the celebration of of the each other's bodies so um the man and the woman celebrating each other's bodies so if we go to chapter four and we read verses one uh through nine you'll have a celebration of the woman's body so we have here we have the man speaking and he says uh, verse one of chapter four beloved you are fair my love behold you are fair you have dove's eyes behind your veil your hair is like a flock of goats going down from Mount Gilead. Your teeth are like a flock of shorn sheep which have come up from the washing, every one of which bears twins, and none is barren among them. Your lips are like a strand of scarlet, and your mouth is lovely. Your temples behind your veil are like a piece of pomegranate. Your neck is like the Tower of David, built for an armory on which hang a thousand bucklers, all shields of mighty men. Your two breasts are like two fawns, Twins of a gazelle which feed among the lilies until the day breaks and the shadows flee away. I will go my way to the mountain of mirth and to the hill of frankincense. You are all fair, my beloved, and there is no spot in you. Come, what happened? I lost out. Come with me from Lebanon, my spouse, with me from Lebanon. Look from the top of Amana, from the top of Shanir and Hermon, from the lion's den and from the mountains of the leopards. You have ravished my heart, my sister, my spouse. You have ravished my heart with one look of your eyes, with one link of your necklace. How fair is your love, my sister? It goes on, but you, you know, it talk. It goes the next verse. Tanks talking about the scent of, of your perfumes, right? But talking about the, the how they're describing each other's bodies as beautiful, wonderful things, and there's there's no shame in it. Uh, if we go jump to the next chapter where the woman is speaking to the man, we go to chapter 5. I'll read 10 through 16. So chapter 5, verse 10. This is her describing him. Uh, My beloved is white and ruddy, chief among ten thousands. His head is like the finest gold. His locks are wavy and black as a raven. His eyes are like doves by the rivers of water, washed with milk and fitly set. His cheeks are like a bed of spices, banks of scented herbs. His lips are lilies dipped, dripped with liquid myrrh. His hands are rods of gold set with burl. His body is carved ivory inlaid with sapphires. His legs are pillars of marble set on bases of fine gold. 
His countenance is like Lebanon, excellent as the cedars. His mouth is most sweet. Yes, it is altogether lovely. This is my beloved, and this is my friend, O daughters of Jerusalem. So she's thoroughly um, uh, celebrating uh, the physical uh, quality, uh, the body, uh, physical body of uh, her man. And it is a, uh, there is no, it's a thing that is shameless. There's not shame attached to the body. It's, it's a thing to be celebrated um, in, in the act of sex, in, in the sexual relationship. Let's go one more uh, uh, for the man describing the woman in chapter 7. Verse 1. How beautiful are your feet in sandals, O prince's daughter! The curves of your thighs are like jewels, the work of the hands of a skillful workman. Your navel is a rounded goblet. It lacks no blended beverage. Your waist is a heap of wheat set about with lilies. Your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle. Your neck is like an ivory tower. Your eyes like the pools of Heshbon by the gate of Bet-Rabim. Your nose is like the Tower of Lebanon, which looks towards Damascus. Your head crowns you like Mount Carmel, and the hair of your head is like purple. A king is held captive by your tresses. How fair and how pleasant you are, O love, with your delights. Your stature, the stat, This stature of yours is like a palm tree, and your breasts like its clusters. I said, indeed. I will go up to the palm tree. I will take hold of its branches. Let now your breasts be like clusters of the vine. Uh, it, they're talking basically about, these are euphemisms for their, their sexual intimacy. He's talking about uh, caressing, you know, fondling her breasts. But anyways, uh, we'll stop there. I mean, there's a lot of description of sex in the Song of Solomon. Uh but I'm trying to make a point about the how the body, um, how they celebrate one another's bodies, um, and there's no shame attached to the body. Which Satan, when Satan perverts sex, he interjects shame and he tries to attach people to get people to attach shame to to their body and to the act of sex. And <clears throat> part of educating ourselves biblically about sex is taking that shame to the foot of the cross because we've all we live in a sexually hyperized hypersexual culture we've all been exposed uh, to things sexual that we we wish we were never exposed to right we, but we have been and satan wants to pervert sex with the shame of of the memories of those things and and so the idea is that we're taking that shame, we're, we're washing our mind in the Word of God, and we're taking that shame to the foot of the cross. So, but I, you know, another thing I just want to point out here that, in addition to shame, is how he's celebrating what our culture, what our world today would call uh, fat, is being celebrated as beautiful and lovely. What does he say here? He says, uh, he called seven, I saw it here uh, somewhere. You know, like your, your, yeah, here it is. Verse uh, two, right? Your navel is a rounded goblet. Uh, it lacks no blended beverage. Your waist is a heap of wheat. Talking about uh, lusciousness uh, around the waist. Uh, rotundness, a rounded goblet, heap of wheat. Talking about uh, <clears throat> belly fat. And that's, that's a uh, celebrated thing in this love relationship between these two people. And it's a beautiful thing. 
but our culture screams at us the lie that it's not that there's only one way to look beautiful which which is is the the the, the and the biblical record would say different and i'm just pointing out song of solomon uh, cha- uh chapter 7 verse 2 uh, for that anyways um so that's the that's the major celebration. So I mean, it, we're not going to read the whole. It's it's several chapters, and we're not going to read it. Uh, you can easily read it um, with your spouse, and, and you can see how uh, all of the joys of sexual intimacy are described and celebrated. Um, we just got into that a little bit there, where we started talking about fondling the breasts. But um, so <clears throat> let's go on to. Uh, just one more thing, and that is to look look at what I, I hinted at, and that's how the one flesh aspect of sexuality, the creation of man, is depicted in the New Testament. Uh, so let's go to, um, we'll just, we'll j- jump in at, in Corinthians where they're talking about adultery, or uh, not adultery, what's it, Pro- prostitution, yeah, the negative, uh, but, but we're really trying to just get at the usage how the New Testament writers are using this term that the two become one flesh in um, in the marriage relationship, the sexual aspect of the meaning of one flesh. So uh, 1 Corinthians 6, verse 15, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a harlot? Certainly not. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a harlot is one body with her? For the two, he says, shall become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. Flee sexual immorality. Every sin that a man does is outside the body, but he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of, of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you are bought at a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. So there's a high calling or challenge for how we use our body here in 1 Corinthians 6. But I want to point out the, the, the connection between human sexuality, the sex act between a man and woman in marriage, and the relationship between Christ Jesus and the church, his bride. Um, so what did he say? If, you're, if you go join yourself with a harlot, you're one body with her. Because of the truth of Scripture, the two shall become one flesh. That's Genesis 2, where sex is created, right? But he who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. And that's what we're called to be, joined to the Lord. In a, in a way that is analogously comparable to our relationships with our spouses, our sexual relationship with our spouse, there's an analogous comparison to our relationship with our relationship with Christ is analogous to that. So let's look at Ephesians uh, 5, 22 through 33, where Paul really uh, lays this out very clearly. Uh, what I just said, he says, but much better. So we'll start in verse 22. How uh, sex is God, God is, is God, God created sex for the joy and the pleasure of it. He, he celebrates it with, with, uh, the, the Song of Solomon, he put that into his word, a, a long narrative celebrating sex. But um, in addition to that, he also has sex pointing to something greater. And that's the intimacy of sexual relationship between man and woman. Points to the intimacy of the relationship 
between us and our God, us and Christ, um, in the spirit, the spiritual intimacy. So you have the physical intimacy pointing to the spiritual intimacy. Um, so let's just read uh, Ephesians 5, 22 through 23, through 33. So starting in verse 22 of Ephesians 5. Women or wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is a head is head of the wife, as also Christ is head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let wives be subject to... Or, I lost my place. So let wives be to their own husbands and everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as the Lord does the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this reason a man shall leave his father and his mother, and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let each one of you in particular so love your own wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So in a mysterious way, where the man and woman come together in the act of sex and they become one flesh. And they're, they're participating in, in each other's body, sharing each other's bone, uh, members of, of, of are each other's flesh and bone. We as believers are spiritually connected to Christ, and in a spiritual sense we are members of Christ's own body, of his flesh and of his bone. And it's a, it's a truth that speaks wider. And just like uh, it's adulterous to uh, to neglect Christ and to pursue uh, our own agendas and desires and idols of our heart. That that that's described as adultery because it's the relationship with Christ is supposed to be like the relationship with our spouse, monogamous. Um, so that's uh, in a nutshell um, the good. How, how the Bible describes sex. Sex is a uh, is mandated and it is celebrated. Mandated and celebrated and it points to deep spiritual truths. So that's really three points of, of the good side of sex. Mandated by God, celebrated by God, and pointing to deep spiritual truths. So now we're going to look at uh, the uh, perversion of sex. How... Uh, Satan uh, attempts to pervert. That's his. That's his game: steal, killing, destroying, perverting, and um, and how in the uh, the Bible all that perversion gets condemned because <clears throat> God cares about people. He cares about us living life to the fullest, and Satan is trying to destroy us with perversion. So, what do we got? Um, well, let's go to Romans chapter one, verse twenty-four. We can look at some of the perversion. I'll read Romans 1, 24 through 27. Romans 1, 24 through 27. Therefore, God also gave them up to uncleanness in the lusts of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves, who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator 
who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to vile passions, for even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. Likewise, also the men, leaving the natural use of women, burden their lusts for one another, man, men with men, committing what is shameful, and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error, which was due. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting, being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, and wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness. The list goes on. This is a snapshot of a passage that's describing the downward spiral of the depravity of man as they reject God. They reject worshiping God, and they seek to fulfill themselves outside of God. The spiral goes downward and downward and downward, more twisted and more perverted, because when you're seeking to fulfill yourself outside of God, uh, you're, you're, you're falling for the bait of the enemy who wants to steal, kill, pervert, and destroy. So that's a description of the downward spiral. So what do we see there? Well, it's, pro, it's the same thing we saw in Genesis 1, where sex was mandated in the creation act. It's man and woman. It's not woman and woman or man and man. It's just two genders, man and woman, and that's, that's, this is God's design for it. And all of the, uh, other ways you could conceive or imagine of sex is perversion of God's original plan. Um, man and woman only. Uh, one man, one woman. So, what else is forbidden? Incest. Incest comes up a lot in the Bible. It's, it's extensively mentioned in the Mosaic Law. All, all kinds of regulations against incest. Specified which relationships are forbidden sexually and which, uh, which is basically any close relationship. For, but uh, we also see it in the New Testament. Uh, I focus on the New Testament because um, <clears throat> a lot of people have a hard time understanding why and how the Old Testament law uh, uh, is can be um, certain. Certainly, the larger, the, the majority of it, still applicable to our lives today, and um, that's a topic that I don't really want to uh, address. <clears throat> it's a it's a lengthy topic. I don't want to address it in the middle of a, a video on a different topic. So, so I'm trying to focus on the New Testament, but I will. We will go to the law because the law is beautiful. Um, some of my favorite passages. Uh, so, anyways, what do we see? Incest condemned in the Corinthian church. Uh, big issue of church discipline around this issue of incest. What's, what's the incest going on here? It is actually reported, 1 Corinthians 5, verse 1, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and such, such sexual immorality as is not even named among the Gentiles, that a man has his father's wife, and you are puffed up and have not rather mourned that he who has done this deed might be taken away from among you, for indeed... And it goes on to the, how Paul is talking about how church discipline needs to happen for this issue. But there's the incest. Um, close family. Uh, uh, what is he? A man, a man has his father's wife. So you get, you get what that is. That's, <clears throat> we don't need to elaborate more. But it's the perversion of sex through incest. Um, we see a lot more of that in uh, Leviticus, actually. Why don't we Why don't we go to Leviticus twenty? Um, Leviticus chapter twenty. Um, let's first look at the perversion with animals. 
Yes, animals. Um, first Leviticus 20, verse 15 through 16. If a man mates with an animal, he shall surely be put to death, and you shall kill the animal. If a woman approaches any animal and mates with it, you shall kill the woman and the animal. They shall surely be put to death. Their blood is upon them. Um, this is bestiality. This is where um, this, this comes up, unfortunately, a lot in a culture like ours, which is perverted. It'll come up in, in pornography. It'll come up in uh, um, a lot of <clears throat> things that are more tied to the occult or to, uh, uh, <clears throat> yeah, to the occult, basically, to uh, <clears throat> the, the idea of anthropomorphism, anthropomorphism, yeah, animals acting like humans and being sexual. So <clears throat> it's a perversion. It's a trap that the enemy wishes to, with demonic the power of demonic stronghold behind it wishes to ensnare and and and, and enslave people. <coughs> so what I, what I was talking about was incest too. So there's bestiality, but you also see incest in Deuteronomy 20, uh, verse 17. If a man takes his sister, his father's daughter, or his mother's daughter, and sees her nakedness, and she sees his nakedness, it is a wicked thing, and they shall be cut off from the sight of their people. He has uncovered his sister's nakedness. He shall bear his guilt. If a man <coughs> lies with a woman during her sickness and uncovers her nakedness, he has exposed her flow, and, she, and he, she has uncovered the flow of her blood. Both of them shall be cut off from their people. Um, what's going on here? This is about uh, the principle of how you're caring for one another. And if you're, um, if you're doing uh, <coughs> sexual uh, activity, and even in your marriage, where um, you're not having the best interest of each other in mind, it's not it's not uh, a good time to have sex, you know. And, and you're you're um, in a sense uh, sex without uh, consent or sex by by guilting someone else into sex, you know. Uh, this is your sp guilting your spouse into sex. It's it's condemned biblically because it's it's only about loving the other person and having their best interests in mind. And obviously, the period isn't of the time because it doesn't have your wife's best interest in mind. So, um, <clears throat> if where what else were we? Um, okay, you shall not uncover the nakedness of your mother's sister, of your father's sister, for that would uncover his near of kin. They shall bear their guilt. Um, if a man lies with his uncle's wife, he has uncovered his uncle's nakedness. They shall bear their sin. They shall die. If a man takes his brother's wife. These are all uh, the close family relationships, which is incest. Where, so incest is condemned. Any, any close family relationship, anything that connects you with a close family member sexually is, is condemned in the Bible as incest in the Mosaic Law and also in the New Testament, as we saw in Corinthians. So anyways, so we had, what are we talking about? Uh, we, we talked about uh, male and female only, and anything that's not is condemned, and that, that includes animals as well. Uh, and we saw incest uh, condemned, and uh, <clears throat> now we'll just look at the idea of the, the marriage covenant, how... Um, sex outside of marriage or sex um, when one is not married is condemned biblically. Um, uh, we'll look, well, we're in Leviticus. Why don't we just bounce over to Leviticus 19, 20, read 20 through 22, and then we'll go to the New Testament to look at this, how sex before marriage is condemned. Um, 
sex is only condoned within marriage, really, is the point. Um, Leviticus 19. Whoever lies carnally with a woman who is betrothed to a man as a concubine, and who has not at all been redeemed, nor given her freedom, for this there shall be scourging, but they shall not be put to death, because she was not free, and he shall bring his trespass offering to the Lord at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. A ram is a trespass offering. The priest shall make atonement for him with the ram of the trespass offering before the Lord for his sin which he committed, and the sin which he has committed shall be forgiven him. This is actually uh, one of the most interesting chapters in the Bible to me, uh, Leviticus 19. Um, it is all about the holiness of God. It, each section of this chapter uh, ends with, uh, you know, I am the Lord your God, and then frequently you have, be holy for I am holy, I am, or be holy for I'm the Lord, I the Lord your God am holy, I am the Lord your God, something like that. And so this little bit about uh, basically... Uh, <clears throat> Two uh, uh, individuals falling into sin, so the, the, they're n neither one's married, right? And uh, they're not supposed to be coming together, and they're mixing their seed, right? It falls in the middle of a passage about mixing, mixing seed, planting your uh, fields with the wrong kind of seed, and then it goes right into humans who are not supposed to be coming together sexually because they're not married, coming together sexually, right? And then it goes seamlessly transitions from that to... Uh, uh, fruit trees. So plants, humans, fruit trees, and that's all one section because each section of this chapter ends with, I am the Lord your God. Uh, it's the original text markers for this section, how the sections are divided. And one section is that. But you see the mercy in there because God is a God of mercy. Satan is seeking to steal, kill, destroy, enslave, ensnare, and shame. God is seeking to redeem and make holy, to make up, to uh, cause people to bear his image and help them to bear his image well. To, it's the process of sanctification, becoming like Christ. That's the journey of the Christian walk. So anyways, uh, we're looking at Leviticus 19 to see about sex before marriage, sex without, without, without the, with it, not in the context of marriage. But let's look at the New Testament because I know that Christian listeners, which I don't think I have any listeners that aren't Christians on here. Uh, the New Testament's the, the big, the, the important book. So let's look at uh, 1 Corinthians 7, start in verse 1, and I'll read about 10 verses. Now concerning the things of which you wrote to me, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Uh, most likely in uh, the way this is constructed, uh, that is what they wrote him, and he's quoting it back to them. They, they wrote asking him this question, is it good for a man not to touch a woman? And, and he's saying, now concerning the things he wrote of me, is it good for a man not to touch a woman? And then he's going to start talking about that topic. So they wrote asking him about uh, human sexuality, right? What is his response? Nevertheless, because of sexual immorality, verse 2, let each man have his own wife and let each woman have her own husband. Let the husband render to his wife the affection due her, and likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another except with consent for a time, that you may give yourselves to fasting and prayer and come together again so that Satan does not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. But I say this as a concession, not as a commandment. For I wish that all men were even as I myself, but each one has his own gift from God, and one is this, 
one in this manner and another in that. But I say to the unmarried and to the widows, it is good for them if they remain even as I am. But if I, they cannot exercise self-control, let them marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. So we'll just we'll stop there. Um, that was his. That's his address to the unmarried. And what's his address? If you can't control your sexual drives, you get married. So in other words, it's not permissible to have sex outside of marriage. Marry and, and have sex in, within the bounds that God intended, the beautiful bounds that God intended for, which is the marriage uh, bounds. So then, so it's condemned before marriage, uh, very clearly. Uh, in this passage here where Paul's writing to the unmarried and in the Mosaic Law. Uh, that, that was 1 Corinthians 7, 1 through 9. So, but then also outside of marriage, it's condemned. So in there's a marriage covenant between the man and the woman, and anything outside of that is adultery, which is breaking that covenant. And all of all of the stuff outside of that covenant is condemned. And we see that, uh, well, let's go back to the Mosaic Law. Let's go back to Leviticus 20, where we were. We see that there, because 20, verse 10. The man who commits adultery... With another man's wife, he who commits adultery with his neighbor's wife, the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. So, <clears throat> there's no there's no way to soften that one. Don't it, it's it's punishable by death. It's it's that it's not okay. It it's destroys destroys people's lives, destroys people's hearts. Let's look at Malachi, the prophetic book. Uh, where it's just the heartache of adultery is described in detail. The infidelity uh, of the marriage relationship being broken, the, the intimate relationship, that knowing relationship, that wonderful relationship being crushed. Uh, let's read how this is described poetically by the prophet Malachi. And this is the second thing you do. You cover the altar of the Lord with tears. With weeping and crying, like what are these tears? These are tears of heartache, of broken hearts. With weeping and crying. So he does not regard the offering anymore, nor receive it with goodwill from your hands. Yet you say, for what reason? Because the Lord has been witness between you and the wife of your youth, with whom you have dealt treacherously. Yet she is your companion and your wife by covenant. But did he not make them one? having a remnant of the Spirit. And why one? He seeks godly offspring. So this is going back to the theology of the of, of Genesis, where we started, Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, where the being, being fruitful and multiplying, the, the idea of sex mandated within the context of the, fam, the marriage relationship for, for family. So God made them one. He, he, he's citing back to the creation narrative. Uh, where was I? Did not God he not make them one, having a remnant of the Spirit? And why one he seeks godly offspring? Therefore take heed to your spirit, and let none deal treacherously with the wife of his youth. For the Lord God of Israel says that he hates divorce, for it covers one's garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. Therefore take heed to your spirit, and do not deal treacherously. So that was Malachi uh, chapter 3, verses 13 through 16. But uh, you see there the, the pain, the heartache caused by uh, adultery, the breaking of the marriage uh, 
covenant, uh, sex outside of marriage, and you see the um, the purpose uh, of God in marriage and in sex is the oneness, right? And adultery breaks that oneness. It violates the meaning of that oneness. It violates the meaning of the knowing. And it just it just shreds people people emotionally. And you see the weeping and the tears described. All right, let's just look at the, let's go to the New Testament for, so we can get the little New Testament in here as well on this topic. And we'll go to Hebrews uh, chapter 13, verse 4. Marriage is honorable among all, and the bed undefiled. But fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. So, it's very clear. The goodness of marriage, God's God's good intent for marriage and sex within marriage, and then sex that's outside of marriage being uh, destructive. And so because it's destructive, God needs to deal with it. And he deals with those things that are destructive in judgment. But he waits because he's so merciful. Because he wants us to turn from the error of our ways and to cry out for his help. Um, what else? So... So, so far we've been dealing with the real easy to identify kind of tangible things, but what about something very, very, you can't really wrap your fingers around like lust? Well, the Bible condemns that too. Things that are going on in your heart, in your mind. Um, let's go to the Sermon on the Mount for that. Again, you know, there, the Bible has many things to say. We could go into Proverbs. We could go a lot of places. Um, this is really just a Real quick teaching that I kind of threw together this morning. I got up kind of early and I threw it together, and we're just we're just sort of scratching scriptural surface. Matthew five, the Sermon on the Mount, verse twenty-seven. You have heard that it was said to those of old, "You shall not commit adultery." But I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. For it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off, cast it from you. For it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than that your whole body be cast into hell. Furthermore, it has been... Okay, so that's... Then it goes into divorce. Uh, I think this passage is pretty clear. It speaks for itself. Um, it's uh, talking about... The thoughts of the heart, lust, and if if one is uh, thinking about um, another um, in a sexual way, it's wrong. Jesus explicitly calls it adultery. Adultery, he takes it from the <clears throat> physical act and he puts it into the level of the heart. And then it goes on to talk about the eye, obviously, pluck out your eye because <clears throat> the eye is where you the vehicle through which you look, right? Obviously, you don't need eyes to lust because you can lust in your thoughts. Blind people can lust. Um, and then he goes on and talks about a hand. Um, I don't know <clears throat> what you think about why he's talking about cutting off your hand if it causes you to sin in this context, but I'm pretty sure he has masturbation in mind because it's what you use to masturbate. It's your hand. And he's saying, let's just read it again. I say to you, that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out, cast it from you. And then if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it, cut it off, cast it from you. 
Now, I know you, you, there may be people that disagree with that interpretation, particularly people who would like to say that masturbation is a great, uh, a great thing for Christians. Um, but we don't really need that passage to be talking about masturbation to see how woefully, uh, you know, how the Bible treats masturbation. Why don't we look at uh, Matthew 16? We can orient ourselves to what the Christian life is actually all about. Matthew 16, 24. It's about self-denial. Um, masturbation is the exact opposite of self-denial. Masturbation is self-gratification. Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone, verse 24 of Matthew 16, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Forever desires to save his life will lose it. What's the, what's the Christian life entail in a, in a nutshell? Self-denial. <clears throat> The exact opposite of the an act like uh, masturbation. But let's let's look at uh, the gospel, uh, the epistles. Paul writing in uh, Galatians five. I'll start in verse sixteen. I say then, walk in the spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusts against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another, so that you do not do the things that you wish. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousy, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambition, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like, of which I tell you before, I, I, I tell you beforehand, just as I told you in time past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. And those who are Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Let us not be conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. So what's the call of the Christian life? It's self-denial. It's crucifying the flesh with its passions and desires rather than gratifying the flesh. So we are called to walk in the Spirit and not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Um, which rules out things like lust and masturbation because those are the desires of the flesh that we are called to as Christians to crucify. Um, what else would be condemned uh, in, in, in how Satan perverts sexual, human sexuality, sex? Well, anything that um, isn't, in, isn't done in love, any, any act of sex that isn't stemming from or done in love is condemned. We saw that in Ephesians 5 where we looked at the marriage relationship where he says, talking about uh, husbands, love your wives like Christ loved the church, laid down his life for the church. And we also saw uh, the principle of anything that uh, when we, we were in 1 Corinthians 6. Let's go back to 1 Corinthians 6. 1 Corinthians 6 verses 15 through uh, 20. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a harlot? And then, then if we go all the way down to the end of that passage, verse 20, uh, 19 and 20, or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought at a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. We have this principle of uh, being stewards of our body, which is God's temple. So this is a principle that, that comes to play in a lot of aspects of our life, but certainly comes into play in, in sex in that we don't do, there's no sexual act 
that is that causes harm to our bodies or to someone else's body that's permissible. Um, and there's a lot of sexual acts that cause harm to people and to 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 one your own body or somebody else's body. Um, and pornography is full of them. You know, I just heard a statistic that 88% of pornography on the internet is violent in nature. That's doing harm to our bodies, which is a direct violation of the stewardship principle of, of 1 Corinthians 6. It's interesting that the stewardship principle is framed in, in the context of sex in 1 Corinthians 6. But anyways, so you may, you may be, <clears throat> maybe you're newly, uh, uh, com coming to Christ or committed to Christ, and you're you've been steep. You, you know that your mind has been steeped in pornography, which is distorting sex drastically. And you want you're trying to sort out, you know, what's right, what what's wrong, what what you know, what is the Bible saying about sex? What sex acts are permitted? What aren't? What aren't? Those are the two guiding principles. Only done in love. I mean. We're only in the context of your marriage relationship, only done in love. You know, the principle we saw consent involved, loving the other person and not bringing harm to the body. Um, and this definitely rules out things like uh, anal sex, which causes rec tearing of the, of the uh, rectum. You know, that's harming the physical, physical body. But um, you know, what's permitted? Well, there's a lot that's permitted that's done in love. It doesn't cause harm. I mean, read Song of Solomon, and you'll see lots of sexual uh, stuff being described. Uh, that's good. It's being celebrated. So, anyways, so that's that's part two. That ends part two. The perversion of sex. So we got the the. Let's just review. Review is good. So part one here was um, the good that the Bible's talking about, about sex. And that's sex mandated at creation, sex celebrated. Um, we looked at Song of Solomon. And then how sex points to the great, uh, to, to greater truths. Uh, that was the three points there under under the, the beauty of sex. And then under the perversion of sex, we talked about how uh, only, how, how Satan perverts sex into being not just a man and his wife, so men with men, women with women, people with animals, all those perversions are condemned. Um, then we talked about how incest is condemned, close family relationships. We talked about before marriage, it's condemned. Breaking the marriage covenant, it's condemned. And we talked about how lust in the heart and masturbation are condemned. And we talked about how anything that is, that is not done in love and that brings uh, harm, you know, violence, hurts, uh, one's physical body, harm to the body, is condemned. So now we're going to look at part four, which is breaking out, you know, redeeming, sex redeemed. So we got to break this. This is about shame because the way Satan perverts sex is he attaches every part of those perversions is shame. He's, he's loading shame on people. So we're going to go to Genesis 3 because Genesis 3 is like the archetypal sin passage because it's the first time sin enters uh, the human realm, and we see the shame. We're going to read the story of the first sin. This is Satan as the serpent, and Eve and Adam as the man and the woman. 
Verse 1, Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat it, you shall not touch it, lest you die. Then the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that there was good for food, the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then God called to Adam and he said to him, Where are you? So he said, I heard your voice in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, Who told you you were naked? All right. What, this, is, this is Satan's game he, with, with all sin, including... The, the wherever there's a line. So what's the what's the line that God lays down here in in the garden? Don't eat from this tree. So wherever there's a line, Satan jumps right up on that, and he tries to get us to break the line, to cross the line. So where's there a line in sex? Well, we just looked at all the line. It, it's it's it thrives. It's it's a beautiful, wonderful thing inside of marriage, where there's intimacy, where there's knowing. Um, it's a celebrated thing. Anything outside of marriage breaks that line, right? Anything that's not a loving marriage relationship where of respect and um, care for one another is going to break that line. All those things are, are, are violating God's intent for sex, how he created sex, right? And, honey, come on. And, okay. Okay, so what what's what Satan do? He he tries as hard as he can, the devil and his minions, to get humans to cross the lines that God has established for our own good and our own protection. And he does it here in the garden. And then what happens when you cross the line? Well, we see it very clearly. There's shame. So much so shame that what do they do? They go and they hide in the bushes from God so so that God can't find them. They're, ru- they're running from God. That's what shame does. It drives us away from God. There's fear, right? They're afraid of God. God asks Adam, you know, what are you doing? And he says, or where are you? He says, I'm scared. I was afraid. So I hid. So shame, fear, and, uh, and of course, guilt. Guilt at knowing that you knew the line, yet you crossed the line. These are the, these are the uh, tools that that the enemy uses to drive us from God. But God shows up. And what does he do? He comes looking for Adam. He comes looking for Eve. Just like he shows up and he comes looking for you and me and every human being on the face of this earth, calling our name. He's calling Adam's name and he's saying, where are you? And then he doesn't just, he doesn't just leave him with, oh, you, you, you messed up. Yeah, clearly Adam messed up, right? And he lays out, there's consequences for, for, for break, crossing the lines. And he lays them out here for them. But, but what does he do at the end? He heals the shame. Why are they experiencing fear and shame? Because their innocence is broken and they're, they're aware of their nakedness. 
and they need to be clothed. And what does God do? God heals that shame at the end of this passage. He takes, um, where is he? Um, where is it? Verse 21. Also for Adam and his wife, the Lord God made tunics of skin and he clothed them. He clothes our shame. That's what our God does. He comes searching for us when we're hiding from him. He calls our name and he provides a way to atone for our shame, to clothe our shame. And it's very fascinating that in Genesis 3, the clothing with which he clothes them is animal skins. And you can't clothe yourself with animal skins without the life of an animal being given. So something dies in Adam and Eve's place in order to clothe their shame. An animal. And that is the gospel message. Is that Christ came. Christ was crucified. He died in our place in order to clothe our shame. To wash our shame away. Let's just read the power of the gospel. Uh, in uh, We'll go to First. Uh, uh, Corinthians, what is it? Six, eleven, I think, <coughs> or, or six and nine, maybe nine through eleven. Yes, this is it right here. This is the power of the gospel. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not need be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revelers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. So what do we do? Do we go hide in the bushes? No, because God has come. He's come down to the earth. We are all these things. We're all perverted in some way sexually. We're all perverted in some way uh, lying, cheating, stealing, manipulating. Every one of these things, we're all perverted. But we don't go hide in the bushes because God has come down to earth. He's come into the garden. He's calling our name. And he's, he's, he's killed an animal. He's killed. Some, he himself has died in our place. Jesus Christ has died in our place to take our, our shame away. So what does it say here? That was verses 9 and 10. What's verse 11 say? And such were some of you, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the spirit of our God. And that's what, that's the story of sex redeemed. Christ has come. Christ has died on the cross in our place to wash us, to sanctify us, to justify us, so that we can live in the newness of his life, surrendering our lives to him, crying out to him for help, washing our minds in the truth of his word about sexuality and, and, and living redeemed. Sex redeemed is a sex without shame, again, because Christ has taken our shame and clothed us. Um, and that's the beauty of the gospel message, which, uh, which is basically all I have. So in a nutshell, that's, that's just a, a short three-part uh, video. It's uh, the, uh, the sex created, sex perverted, and sex redeemed. Uh, thanks for listening. That's some small portion of what the Bible has to say about sex and human sexuality. So biblical sexual education. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I know that I myself and probably anyone who will ever watch this video has um, <clears throat> participated in, in, in the enemy's bait to steal, kill, and destroy and in the perversion of sex. 
However, even if it, if it only be through lust or masturbation, but pr probably on the internet and pornography because of the, the astronomical uh, statistics on how pornography is used, Lord God, we know that the enemy places shame on us, fills our hearts, uh, tries to beat us down, tries to get us in the bushes, hiding from you, Lord Jesus, but we know you are a pursuer, a great pursuer of our souls. And so we just come to you. We thank you for your gospel. We thank you that you came down to earth, that you died to take our place, to take our shame away and to clothe it. And we love you, Jesus. And we just ask that you would empower and enable us as your people to become more and more like you. Help us to read your word, to be cleansed by it, that our mind would be renewed and that we could be people who live and walk this earth free in in freedom and in in the celebration of sex that how you have created it in jesus name we pray amen thank you all for joining have a good day